0: Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. Regular listeners of our show know we spend a lot of time focusing on lessons learned at the startup stage. But this week, we're going to peer around the corner to the next phase in business, the scale-up, something that's a lot more complicated than finding product market fit, adding a dash of sales here and a dash of marketing there, and watching your charts head up into the right. To give us insight into when and how to grow, our managing editor, John Collins, is joined by Joe Haslam. Joe the executive director of the owner's management program at IE Business School in Madrid, which is actually ranked by the Financial Times as the top school in Europe for entrepreneurship. His academic focus is none other than how to scale companies, something he's done quite a bit himself, most recently as chairman and co-founder over at Hot
1: Hotels. In his chat with John, Joe explains what pitfalls lead to premature scaling. If you have a terrible product and you set people up for huge expectations and then you don't deliver, they generally don't give you a second chance.
0: How your users' expectations are going to change as you grow?
1: But you need your early users to test everything from, you know, your, your your technical scalability, how many users you can support at the same time, and also things like usability and stuff like that. Because you know, as you grow bigger and as you get away from the kind of the early adopters, people are less and less tolerant to usability stuff that doesn't work and the door scaling opens when it comes to hiring when you get to a certain size you can hire great people but great people won't come to you until you're a certain size because they're like i can't deal with the chaos i need to have a certain things i'm very good at my job but i need to have this structure
0: if you like what you hear want to catch more inside intercom episodes subscribe to our show over on itunes or your favorite podcast app while you're there we'd be forever grateful if you shout us a rating or review it really helps new listeners find the show and we appreciate any and all feedback and now Let's hop in the studio to talk scaling with John Collins and Joe Haslam.
1: You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com.
2: Joe, what's been your own journey to the point, I suppose, where you've gone from startups to now finding yourself looking at the issue of scaling companies?
1: Sure. Hi, John, and, and thanks for having me on the program. Well, I guess I was one of those consultants who left a good job in consulting during the dot-com time to, to go set up companies. And myself and five others, we set up a company called Marrakesh that went on in the end to raise $75 million. And the thing about it is, is that, you know, it was my first company and my first experience, and I was just looking at where all the money was going, and I was looking at, uh, you know, where we were spending it. And, and we really didn't have a clue. I mean, I think we, we can be honest about that now, although the company still uh, exists today. And it just kind of got me thinking, you know, there must be a way to do this that is, is, is less random and less haphazard. And as my journey has gone on, and I've founded now five or six companies in total, including Marrakesh, in some ways, I see some of the behaviours repeated. And one of the things that has changed in startups in particular, with Steve Blank and Alex Osterwalder and, and Eric Ries, is that we know a lot more about how to start companies, principally this idea of getting out of the office, principally this idea of you experiment. You don't just lock yourself away in a room and then come up with a product and then You know, think people will buy it. So we've got a lot better in that. However, you know, the world of scale up, which is what comes after startup, we're still kind of blind. I mean, there have been some theories. Uh, There's a guy, Bob Sutton, in Stanford University that's doing a lot of work in the area. But in general, uh, there isn't a lot known about scale ups. And, you know, the thing that we're fighting is there's this kind of assumption that once you raise money, once you start to get bigger, that the time of survival is kind of over. But actually, it's even worse. It's even harder when you do startup.
2: Because I suppose. Yeah. if you were to look maybe just at medium.com or Hacker News you'd assume that like once you reach product market fit you're home and hosed you know you just li- literally have to pour petrol on the flames and, and away you go but I mean as you found, you have to have a lot of things in place before you can scale it. So, you know, is it just a case of get to product market fit and then get some deep pocketed investors and away you go? Or like what what are the mistakes that people make in that transition from startup to growth phase?
1: Well, you'll hear that. You'll hear which is kind of, you know, just add sales and marketing. Get to product market fit, just add sales and marketing. And, you know, that has worked for some people and and, you know, we're still early on in the experiment. So maybe it's worked for some people in in the short term, but might not necessarily work in the medium term. But what we're finding is really a number of things. Well, the first thing is the whole product market fit. Um, Alex Schultz of Facebook famously says that that's the biggest mistake people make. They want desperately to have product market fit so much that they pretend they have it. I've drawn the analogy to getting married, uh, and it kind of generally causes a frisson in the audience when I've said it, which is like when you're getting married, you want desperately this to be the love of your life and it all work out. And sometimes you overlook, you know, the, as, as uh, what you should famously do before you get married is put someone in front of a slow computer and see how they behave. And anyone who can't survive that environment is probably not a good person to marry. But that's the thing about product market fit, that, that you people want desperately to, to believe it's true. So they will look at the evidence that it's true but ignore the other stuff. But that's the first thing. And the, the big error then is this thing called premature scaling, which is that people believe that they have product market fit when they don't, and they add sales and marketing. And one thing that is true, and it has been true for a long time, is nothing kills a bad product like good marketing. In other words, if you have a terrible product and you, you sell people up for huge expectations and then you don't deliver they generally don't give you a second chance so that's kind of what we're seeing a lot so that's kind of the the first thing you should draw which which was like don't pour on the sales and marketing until you're sure you have product market fit so how do you know if your product is ready? What are the, what are the sort of things you're going to see in, in, in your product? Well, of course, the classic thing is engagement. You know, the classic thing is, is, that, is that, that you need to have you know, the toothbrush test, which is what uh, they call it in Google, which is this idea of something that you use every day. And, and of course, you, you want an early enthusiastic amount of users rather than a lot of users. In other words, a, lo- a small number of people uh, doing it every day is much better than a large number. What gets interesting then, and that's the classic startup thing, what gets really interesting is the scale-up situation where you kinda of, you have to double down on that. And also the tension comes in that your early enthusiastic users tend to be people that, that like you very often for the personal service and things like that. And then when you start to scale it's not possible to deliver that personal service. And there's loads and loads of examples. eBay would be an example of where you know their early dedicated user group were almost in tears as the company just said, okay there's more money to be found here, so this is where we're going. So that's a real tension and that's something you have to manage. That you need your early users to test everything from you know, your, your, your technical scalability how many users you can support at the same time and also things like usability and stuff like that uh, because you know, as you grow bigger and as you get away from the, kind of the early adopters uh, people are less and less tolerant to usability stuff that doesn't work you know? so that's kind of one of the real tensions and that's actually one of the things about scale up that, that you know, once we start to really differentiate it from startup that's how you treat your users and uh, what the kind of things they're looking for But... I mean, not
2: all scaling is the same. I mean, there are different ways to approach this. I mean, you've talked about different models of, of how you can quickly grow your company. What are the main ones? I mean, they seem to be, you know, in the US, there's a particular type of model. Maybe in China, they, they've approached it differently.
1: Sure. I mean, there, there's a couple of, you know, terminology alerts here. Uh, <laughs> the first one would be blitz scaling, which is, and there's, there's actually a magnificent course uh, available on YouTube uh, that Reid Hoffman uh, has put on called blitz scaling. And one of the amazing things is how few people have watched it, you know? Okay. And there's like about five thousand people, as few as that, just as a you know ballpark. Over a billion people have watched, uh, you know, Despacito. But so it's you start to see this kind of thing. So, but there's magnificent stuff there, and it's kind of thing you have to sit down, literally watch it first to say, "Wow, I need to learn this." Watch it the second time with a pen, and watch it a third time, like literally as a podcast. And and. You know, the thing about it, of course, is that Silicon Valley isn't everywhere. And mm-hmm. I mean, in IE Business School, you know, we, we're not a kind of a Silicon Valley influence place in the way that Stanford is. You know, most of our people are come from like family businesses or stuff who, who maybe had a family business that was like working very well in Italy. But then, you know, they, they now competition comes from everywhere and they realize they have to get to a certain scale to be competitive. So they send like the third of the generation to us and we, we, we talk about that. So that's the kind of the blitzscaling
2: taking in your venture capital sort of very like being totally focused on on, on growth
1: yeah it's absolutely totally focused on growth uh, I should also, by the way, go back to uh, the the three models or the different scaling models. So you have blitz scaling, which is Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. China then has something called hyperscaling, okay. uh, which is absolutely fascinating. And it, it's something not having lived in China, which is, you know, I'd always be very cautious of saying too much about what, could, what you can learn on a, like a two-week visit. But hyperscaling, the interesting thing is just China is just so big, you know. Population, it, the addressable yeah, market. Yeah, so in other words, you, you know, you could have an app that's, oh, we've had to close it. It only had like 15 million users, you know. And that's the kind of thing, you you know, you, you're like, you hear that and you go, wow, you know. Uh, and uh, they have hyperscaling. They're just very intense about stuff, you know. Also, just the way that Chinese people are organized. A lot of people are living away from their villages and they, they are just like, they can get hooked on something really, really quickly. Uh, and they, you know, the behavior in terms of video and also like censorship and, and all these kind of issues. So you find Xiaomi would be an example of a hyperscaling company. Like what they managed to do in a week continues to astound me and what they've been able to do like week in, week out for like three or four years you know Mm. i I just couldn't see anyone with that kind of uh you know even the companies i know well you know amazon is often talked about being a very difficult environment but you know xiaomi is much more intense you know Mm. so uh, that's kind of the hyperscaling environment which is different to blitzscaling and then i guess you could you could possibly then uh, you know talk about the rest of the world, which is kind of slowly and profitably rather than a kind of a dash for growth. Uh, You know, profit still is attached to kind of a lot of the rest of the world. So that would be about maybe growing a bit slowly, but growing profitably. Uh, and there wouldn 't be this kind of you know load up on v c uh, just get as long as we have the engagement, go public as quickly as you can, and then kind of you know incentivize your employees with share options, which is kind of the blitz scaling model uh, the companies i mean there are, there are enormous companies in in uh, you know in Germany and Italy uh, that you 've probably never heard of who are still private you know and and they they have they have fantastic growth, but we haven't heard of them. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that Silicon Valley gets the attention it gets is because they provide the information, Sure, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's, access. you know, you guys at Intercom are, have been very, are, are
2: unusual in that. We talk about models there. Is there any models from the natural world that are useful? Because, I mean, a lot of people talk about, like, hypergrowth as if it's it's something unnatural. But, like, where does scale exist in the natural world? Do we, you know, is there anything we can learn from that? Yeah,
1: I mean, this is the other thing um, about about where, you know, you, you inevitably find yourself One of the things that we're poor at in the tech industry is, you know, successful people tend to have an unbelievable ability to focus. Uh, And it means we actually know very little about the rest of the world. Uh, You know, there's a story about Mark Zuckerberg when he came to Madrid. Uh, You know, all he could talk about was Facebook. And Mark was like, oh, would you like to eat this? And he was like, you know, put that on Facebook and he was even asked about Barack Obama you know and all he could say about Obama was Obama's on Facebook so <laughs> most you know this focus is kind of what makes a lot of these companies super successful but it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you know you're, you read kind of you know recreational physics or, or stuff like that and Patrick Collison in, in Stripe is an exception about that he, he's published his bookshelf and one of the reasons he's, he's liked by a lot of people is he seems to be a more rounded figure mm-hmm. but the reality of scaling is that you should be reading books and biology about like how a forest fire is both starts and is put out because what you're trying to do is sustain a product market fit in other words as you scale you have to keep the product market fit always in other words your product fits with the market if it doesn't you don't make sales but the product market fit changes and generally what it does is that the the definition gets expanded So, in other words, while you might have a product market fit that say, you know, for this group of users in this circumstances, at this time, you know, we are the optimum for your product. Now, what will change is perhaps we'll move from women between 30 and 50, we'll we'll, we'll extend that, you know. So, it changes, not a lot, but it does change. And also, you'll go more narrower. In other words, you'll dig even deeper. You double down, triple down, and that's how you scale. My best kind of example of talking about scale is Ryanair. I remember where I was talking to the deputy CEO and I said, like, what does the deputy CEO do that this... What, I've never heard of a deputy CEO. It's kind of a very strange idea to have. And he's like, I stop bad ideas. In other words, people that try to deviate from our central plan and they have the Southwest Airlines model of low cost, you know, the regional airports. And they, you know, anyone who kind of jumps up and says, oh, we should be doing this, you know, he he goes down on them. And he's like, focus, focus, focus. And, and the key to scale is, is focus. It's absolutely. And, and you get even more within what you're doing rather than expanding it. Of course, that puts you in much more risk. And that's why you're actually in bigger risk as a scaling company of going out of business. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
2: We've obviously talked about, you know, successful examples, but are there good examples of companies that chose the wrong path, maybe whose mistakes we can learn from? To my mind, I think straight away maybe of Lego in the the noughties where they like just expanded way too far in terms of like away from the core toys and, and nearly went bankrupt, brought back from the brink. I mean, is there
1: any other interesting examples? Well, there's also a thing that says that any company that that just moves into a new headquarters, you should short them immediately. And (laughs) Lego have just moved into a fantastic new headquarters. Changing your logo or moving into a new headquarters (laughs) are short short of all offences. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk about Uber. And that's because, of course, there's a professor in NYU who's known as the High Priest of Valuation. And he was very early on saying, look, the numbers don't add up. And, uh, you know, he was kind of criticised by it. Notably, you know, Bill Gurley wrote a very good post. And and made some good points, you know, which kind of talked about that they were creating a new category, so it's impossible to value something that's new. But you know, if you start to read like Naked Capitalism, or you start to read even the FT columns now, they're they're pretty much talking about a number of things about Uber in terms of their culture, doesn't scale uh, for one. Also, their subsidy model, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of things, and even their, you know, just the idea of they don't have any moat. You know, Warren Buffett is famous for talking about a defensible moat. I was in Saudi arabia recently and you know Karim is completely dominating what's going on and there's there's like a kind of local uber type services that are much stronger so you know and we all know that eventually they had to get out of china as well
2: okay you touched on this already about the importance of operations and it really feels to me like you know operations it's probably not the sexy thing that people want to write about or talk about but you know surely there's a lot we can learn from other industries I mean operations has been cracked like the last 50-60 years like modern sort of management and, and, and stuff what, what, what do you think the tech industry can learn that maybe you see often sure. being mistaken
1: There's a, there's you know a kind of an almost total disconnect between operations and, and the, what they have spent the time that they have spent uh, kind of you know understanding how to fulfil and how to keep your demand flexible again they got you know uh, the, the, the model in, in, in startups is about demand uh, whereas operations coming out from a supply point of view. I mean, if the if the Eskimos or the Inuit or whatever you want to call them have like 50 words for snow, uh, operations has 50 words for time, you know? And and that's kind of, you know, that even just that thinking, you know, I, I know people who've said like, hold that thought. <laughs> and also like the classic engineering kind of way of thinking about problems is is the magic triangle of good, quick, cheap. You know, I can give you any two. In other words, uh, but I can't give you all three. And, and actually, the op- modern operations thinking is much more, no, you, I can give you all three. You know, and Amazon being a, a kind of a huge example of that. So, uh, you know, it, it's you talk about like the news vendor model, Little's Law, like there's all these laws that kind of talk about stress points in scaling. And you know, that's what the magic kind of, you know, I know myself, the feedback I get when I give a, a speech, people say like what number of people should I hire a HR person? Uh, you know, what number of people should I open an office? You know, and they ask you very specific questions and there are as yet no answers to these, but operations have been at least thinking about these problems. And one of the things about Uber, of course, is that they have no operations. They have no COO, you know, mm. uh, which is another kind of, you know, you know, raging red flag. And one of the funniest things I see is, is people have talked to me about, okay, we're scaling up. What things do we need to do and I've talked to them about like you know culture and things like that and then I see pictures on Facebook whatever where they where some people are joining the company and how there's like welcome packs waiting for them.
2: What happens to culture as you grow rapidly? You you mentioned culture there I mean are you trying to protect your original culture or do you just have to resign yourself to, to the fact that it's going to change?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot. The first thing is this idea of, like, hiring slowly, you know? And, and then, uh, particularly at the start, um, and again, Patrick Collison in, in the Blitzscaling class uh, talks a lot about this. But, um, I think
2: he says your first 10 hires are your first 100, because you're going to... Yeah. you're going to hire from their networks. Basically, what you
1: need to do isn't so much hire the person, but hire the person who hires the person. Mm. So that that works two ways. So if you want to build a good technical team, you get one technical guy, and then Pied Piper like will get all the rest. But also the point that Patrick was making was very much this idea that if you have to get the right ten people, because that's like a tenth of your company, and and that if you have the wrong person, they'll, they'll set the wrong values. And um, there's another kind of interesting theory, which is the the Bill Belichick theory of you know do your own job. You know, in the Super Bowl, like if you have guys who are dreaming about, like, you know, making the final play, you know, you'll never get to the final play. In other words, like, what's your job? And it's uh, literally, you know, they sit at this post. You know, mix you know, like Jose Mourinho says, never cross the halfway line if you're a fullback. Uh, but you have this sort of notion of, of do your job, and that's quite interesting. As that's not so, you know, when you start up, you just need someone who'll, who's flexible and will do everything. Uh, but after a while, you need people who do their job. And the reasons for scaling and one of the great things I found in company is that when you get to a certain size, you can hire great people. But great people won't come to you until you're a certain size because they're like, I can't deal with the chaos. I need to have a certain things. I I'm very good at my job, but I need to have this structure. So culture is is one of those absolutely crucial things. And every every company has a culture. The question is whether you have sat down and created it, mm-hmm. uh, and that's so, it
2: happens whether you like it or not. Yes.
1: And <laughs> like you know. You, you, You sort of say to me, like, I know that, Joe, like, you know, brilliant, but it's actually a huge point. And it's like, is it written down? You know, is it is it acted on culture is defined as how people behave when the boss isn't in the room. And it's also defined, you know, in in like, you know, the, the worst behavior the boss is willing to tolerate. So you have all of these kind of things. But you know, there's this culture of how we do things around here, this culture of, like, never speaking badly to a customer, and and, the high priest of this is Tony Shea in Zappos, and he's written a book about it, and, and talks about that you know, they used to interview people, and in fact, they used to send a Zappos uh, employee to pick the guy up in the airport in Vegas, and then he would like, you know, how you treated the taxi driver would tell you so much about how you would treat other people, mm-hmm. and very often you'd get to the point then, and they, you know, they then then that would all be revealed, scooby, <laughs> Scooby-Doo like, and uh, but that was the kind of thing that they did. But like, listen, culture is one of those things that that you know instinctively, uh, you know, the journey from. Can you stay as a founder CEO to like a, a Nasdaq CEO, mm-hmm. you know, and, which is, you know, Anderson, Andrews and Horvitz are huge in the importance of that. And because the founder has a credibility and losing a founder is not a good thing. You want to try and keep them. But but that's one of the things, whether they get the importance of culture or not. That's right. a huge issue.
2: Personally, I've never been comfortable with the whole unicorn tag. I mean, a billion dollar valuation. It's a nice round figure, but it's pretty arbitrary. But there's a big focus on them at the moment. But at the same time, there's clearly a lot of venture in later stage finance around. So and, you know, equity markets aren't that open to, to tech companies. What are the downsides though and or, or what are the things people need to think about as they're trying to finance scaling i mean it, you know we, we you talked about the 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 blitz model is it the only way to go that you, you you need to get venture to to scale
1: well i mean the first thing is how you know you have to give how much of your company you have to give away you know i think aaron levy in in box it was down to about two percent by the by the i p o now he got out the i p o and again he he <laughs> you know, I don't think he'll have any difficulty uh, you know, paying the bill uh, if you go out for a drink with him. But at the same time, you know, Amancio Ortega still owns 50, 59% of Inditex. You know, yeah. he built it slowly and, and, and you know had a different model. Uh, so that's the first issue, you're giving away your company. The second issue then is, I mean, I know myself in Hot Hotels after we took a round of finance, we had calls from recruiting agencies, from like uh, we even had people sending us yachts and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff. And and uh, So it's hard to have that kind of discipline so you know the bigger you the bigger you get uh, and then you also run into like um, you know is, is there enough of a certain kind of person you know like there's only a limited number of people on the planet which is another thing we're sort of finding f- from operations so I don't know the unicorn thing is I think it's a very Silicon Valley thing and, and uh, you know in Spain for instance where I live you know you have big companies on the on the, on the stock exchange and you have small companies what you don't have is a the middle the, the real debate is in the middle you know yeah. Germany have these fantastic middle stand companies that are like 800 people the very best at what they do in the world Uh, And they're like clear leaders and those kind of things. So in a sense, I like to talk about scaling as encouraging entrepreneurs to to make the leap from like, you know, 10 or 15 people to 100. Rather than this idea of like scaling to blitz scale or hyperscale to be a unicorn. You know, if you want to make a social point, you know, a little bit of politics, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of where jobs come from. You know, new fast growing companies.
2: And just so uh, we don't uh, totally say maybe focus on the downsides of getting big. I mean, what are the advantages of scale? You touched on maybe being able to attract better quality people, but like, what can you do at scale that you you can't do when you're when you're in that startup? Well,
1: survival. I mean, you you know, you you you, I mean, obviously, you're you're under threat of survival, but eventually, you you can withstand more stuff. You know, Uh, you know, in hot hotels like Facebook are now starting to sell hotels. You know, Uh, Google have been kind of you know selling hotels, kind of on the you know indirectly for quite a mm-hmm. while and you know although amazon tried to sell hotels and then stopped so i mean that's kind of one of one of the issues about uh, you know defensibility and like keeping people away you know that's kind of why if you look at um you know, interviews about both Dropbox to Houston and also Airbnb, they talked about this notion of they were afraid of the Samners in Germany, you know, opening clones. So that's why they scaled. In other words, they, what they wanted to do was get big quickly to kind of deter other people getting into the market. So that's the first thing, first reason you need to do this. The so second, you can hire a better type of person who's better at their job. And the number one inhibitor to scaling is not lack of money or lack of talent, although they are clearly factors. It's bad management and, and the, the reality is and I know I work in a business school so people will say you're talking your own book but I, I'll say this uh, you know I spend half my time running companies there are a whole pile of things that we think we are good at that we're not actually good at and that's everything from recruiting even the very best recruiters will tell you they get it right like five out of ten times that's even the best people maybe a bit higher maybe six but certainly not eight or nine so you know what someone who's never studied a recruiting book never kind of you know videoed themselves and then had that played back to them you know, what chance do they have so there's all these things about how to manage people how to give feedback you know it, it's sort of i see it all the time and it frustrates me that i can't get through to, to people who come to my classes and they kind of you're telling them it's like you are not good at this and and a big kind of you know sort of developmental thing is in life you find out what you're good at and get even better at it you don't try and whatever you're bad at just just let someone else do it you know you're not if you're not good at engineering and maths you, you can't become one so that's a sort of a you know that's a kind of a huge issue that and getting big Um, allows you to sort of to to deal with those factors as well you know take away the dependencies uh, and kind of allow you to focus on, on doing what you're really good at having good other people around you you know all of that is a function of management it's all a function of well managed you know project planning delivering on time on budget all that kind of stuff and anyone who's worked with a good manager you know knows exactly that somehow stuff just doesn't happen cool Joe, as you say, it sounds
2: like a, a good problem to have, as they say. Thanks for coming in and talking to us about the problems and challenges and also enjoyment of scale. Great. Enjoyed it, John. Thanks.
1: You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great
2: content, check out blog.intercom.com.